Coronavirus New Zealand, a daily stuff podcast. $50 million for media, eh? I trust you sent Chris Farr for your bank details, Eugene? Can't wait. Anyway, welcome to Coronavirus NZ for Thursday the 23rd of April. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham. Each day we bring you the headlines, some of the more unusual things about life under lockdown, and then we slow it down and look at one thing in particular. Swear jar's taking a hammering today. Just saying. It's not my fault I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Charming. So what's your problem, bro? Uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's because today would have been the last day of the original four-week lockdown. But really, I think it's just a reflection of the way a lot of us are right now. You know, some days you wake up and you think, oh, it's quite nice, really, staying home. And then other days you think, nah, this really sucks. Pay cuts, people dying, friends suffering, worldwide mayhem. I'm just over it. Uh, I know what you mean. A few people have even said Jacinda Ardern seemed a bit grumpy at the 1pm press conference the last couple of days. Hits us all, apparently. Later, we speak with Luke Melpas, Duff's political editor, about the differences between New Zealand's and Australia's COVID-19 responses. And he tells us all about the kebab jogger. But first, what's happened today? First up, a bit of an update, and it's a sad one. The other day I talked about the anonymous Dunedin patient and how it seemed that after a long stretch in intensive care they'd turned a corner, but it turns out they hadn't. This afternoon, Ashley Bloomfield said the patient had died, one of two deaths announced today. Stuff reporter Sam Sherwood has spoken to the Dunedin patient's family. So now we know a little bit more about her. Her name is Jocelyn Finlayson. She was a 62-year-old from Invercargill who was loving being a grandmother. She's one of those rare cases where no one knows where she contracted the virus, a case of community transmission. There were three new cases today, but the total number of cases remains the same because maths. Uh, Yesterday's total included three cases from the Greg Mortimer cruise ship, and it turns out they had already been counted in Uruguay's total, and so they've been taken off the New Zealand total. Three minus three equals zero. Got it? And good news, hunters. Hunting is to be allowed under level three, but there's a few special rules. You've got to stay local and no hanging out in the bush overnight. Dinner table conversation last night. I asked my 15-year-old daughter what what year 11 online is looking like, seeing school is operating even though it's still lockdown. And um, in a word... It's kind of rubbish, apparently. Um, There's a certain amount of group hangouts with teachers and, you know, there is, they are moving through the syllabus and all that, but she's, she's not enjoying it much. And her big complaint is mostly it's just hours and hours and hours of homework. To which my son, who's in his first year of uni and seems to be quite enjoying his Zoom tutorials, kind of rolled his eyes and said, well, yeah, duh, you are at home. So it's, it's homework or nothing, really. Yeah. And that's kind of how the government wants things to remain. It's said that it still wants the vast majority of kids to stay home and learn from home. But to be honest, it was a bit confusing when they announced what Level 3 would look like. They talked about a return to school being voluntary. It's been clarified since then. They, they've said, look, schools and early learning centres will be open for up to year 10 for families that need it, but children who can should stay home. So year 11 to 13 will remain fully online. So that's where your daughter's at, Adam. My kids have gone through school, so it doesn't really affect me directly, but someone who does have kids in this age, is Stuff National Correspondent Steve Kilgallen. He's on the line. Hi, Steve. Morning, gents. Hey, Steve. So what's, what is your situation uh, with your kids and their education? Um, so I've got three-year-old twins and a 10-year-old. The three-year-olds go to a 
kindy four days a week and i've been really impressed with their approach actually they've sent out an email saying here's all the things we're going to do the kids will be um have the temperature taken at the door parents aren't allowed inside they're being kept in bubbles of 10 and if they if they're over 38 degrees they get turned away but given a lollipop and a toy to sort of take the pain away and so it's it's really they're really well organized but i've talked to the lady who runs it and um said i don't plan to send mine back yet and she told me she's not sending her kids back to school. So I figure if she's not sending her own kids back, probably probably now's not the time. The 10-year-old is, is doing remote lessons and, and probably a similar experience to Adam's daughter. He, he's he been getting up early in the morning and reckons he's finished by nine o'clock. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a bit more of a hands-on <laughs> view of that in the coming days and see if he actually is doing it all or just the bits he fancies. I'm curious how early how early is early? I mean, is he working from nine eight forty five to nine? He's saying like six thirty to sort of eight thirty. So if he is doing a solid two hours, I I don't think they're probably doing more than a solid two hours at school normally anyway, if you count all the mucking around and break times and PE and Yeah. So mm, if he's yeah. doing two hours, fair enough. But <laughs> I think there needs to be a bit of examination of his claim. So well that's that's the thing, isn't it? The government by making it voluntary, it creates this quite murky space where you don't know, should I go, shouldn't I go? Is, is it voluntary because it's bad? Or, you know, what's the definition of really needing it? So I think, once again, they're relying on us all to do the right thing. But I think the schools are a bit more suspicious of us. So Henry's school sent a questionnaire out with all these yes, no questions, which are all designed to lead you to the conclusion that no, you didn't need to send your kid back to school and you were quite a bad person if you did. It was, it was really cleverly worded, actually. I was very impressed. But I had no intention of sending him anyway. But clearly they don't want you to send your kids back. And I think they are worried that they're going to send your kids back because you've had enough of them now after five weeks. That, that was a view that kids would just be sent back because they were, they were a pain in the neck was a view that was expressed by Jacinda Ardern's former principal, wasn't it, at Morrinsville College, John Inger. I imagine he's Mr. <laughs> Inger to her, I suppose. But that, that he said that uh, parents who wanted to send their kids to school might do so because their kids were just a pain in the neck. Uh, you know, To which she said, I wonder if Mr. Inger is reflecting that I would have been one of those students returning to school with my father being a police officer and my mother working at the school. So perhaps he had me in mind and making I, that I judgment I can think call. of one very hard-nosed colleague of ours who's been all over Twitter for the last three weeks saying how desperate he is to send <laughs> his child back to school and wants to get them out of the door. I won't name who it is. but Yeah, he said he'd yeah. be first at the gate, didn't he? I think. <laughs> I think the whole lockdown thing has prompted sort of extremes of emotion. Like I've, I've had times where I've felt like, my bond to my children has become deeper and I love them more than I ever have. And we've had some great moments. And then there's the opposite end of the scale where they're absolutely doing your head in and you just want to get away from them. And I feel those two extremes have got stronger as, the, as lockdown's gone on. And I'll be sad to sort of see them go back in one sense, but I'll also be really, really pleased. It, it, for me, it goes hand in hand with that whole, isn't it nice we've got this 1950s neighbourhood thing going on? You can walk around the streets and you see everyone you know and everybody's out on the bikes and it's really nice and everyone's going, this is great and we'll all miss it. But at the same time, I'm sure that once we can all drive our cars again and go to the pub and go to the cinema, we'll go straight back to doing what we did before and it'll all be gone. Steve Kilgallen, thanks very much. Thanks, guys. It's really easy to forget, isn't it, that coronavirus is so new. I mean, it feels like several centuries ago that we went into lockdown, but the fact is that Christmas time, none of us will have heard of COVID-19. And so, of course, there's so much that we're still finding out about it, and doctors are right at the front line. There's a terrific piece in the Washington Post, which has been published on Stuff Today, about the novel, deadly complications of this disease. It tells it in a really interesting way. It starts with the head of a group of intensive care unit team leaders in Atlanta in the States, messaging everyone to see how they're getting on and 
One of the doctors mentions a strange blood problem with one patient. Despite giving them anticoagulants, the patient keeps developing clots. Suddenly the team leader's phone blows up and every person in the group chat has reported similar things. The story goes on. One month ago, many doctors felt confident they knew what they were dealing with. Based on early reports, COVID-19 appeared to be a standard variety of respiratory virus, albeit a very contagious and lethal one with no vaccine and no treatment. But they've since learned that COVID-19 attacks not only the lungs, but also the kidneys, heart, intestines, liver and brain. And many are also reporting bizarre, unsettling cases that don't seem to follow the textbooks they've trained on. I mean, you don't want to belittle or trivialise what's going on. This is a deadly illness sweeping the planet. But you can't help imagine this as a scene out of House. You know, that drama with Hugh Laurie where he's a mad scientist type doctor taking a crack at all sorts of weird cases. I have another anecdote from my inexhaustible collection of fascinating moments from my walks to the beach. Perhaps once this over, I could publish a book called My Boring Walks to the Same Beach Every Day. Great plan. Stop moaning and tell your story, Adam. Okay, between my place and the beach, there are quite a few houses that have really gone to town on the teddy bear thing. So one house is a teddy who stands in the middle of the lawn, wearing trousers actually, which makes the legs weirdly long and makes them rather uncanny. But he's a very versatile teddy bear. Each day he's doing something slightly different. Sometimes he's hanging out washing on a rack. You know, I'm assuming, I'm saying he because teddy sounds like a masculine name, but maybe it's a lady teddy. Who knows? Um, Sometimes they're just chilling in their gumboots. The other day they were hauling on a miniature rubbish bin. Quite cute. Anyway, this morning I spotted a teddy I'd not seen before. There's a kind of fake Grecian plaster statue of a naked woman in somebody's front garden. And Today, she was sort of nestling a little teddy bear in her naked arms. So I pointed this out to my wife. It'd be fair to say we're running short of conversation topics. And she said, hey, this is almost like a flashback to 2016 when Pokemon Go launched and everyone was roaming the streets looking for cute, fluffy animals, even if they were on your phone. And I said, I have no idea what I said. Where was I going with the story? You were going for a segue for the story about teddy bears on stamps. Keep on point. Ah, yes, right. So it turns out the New Zealand Post is going to make some commemorative COVID-19 stamps. Obviously, because we want to remember this moment so much. And they're going to have teddy bears on them. And that never happened with Pokemon Go. True. So New Zealand Post is asking for New Zealand's six best teddy bears, and they'll put them on the stamps. And fair enough. It's arguable that in the extremely short list of good things to come out of COVID-19, the teddy bears might well be top of the list. Plague playlist. What do you got, Adam? More from the mailbag, actually. Erin Harrington writes to say, Hi, Virus Potters. I'm really enjoying the podcast. It's a calming tonic at the back end of the day while I do the dishes, of which there are heaps given all I seem to do while working from home is eat. And then she goes on to um, suggest a song we should play. But as well as that, she suggests that perhaps we need a plague reading list as well. She suggests the novel Station Eleven, which apparently is a book about a pandemic. But as for the song, she points to something from a bunch of women from Christchurch who call themselves the Starlets, and they've got this take on ABBA. I saw you dancing from the first beat there, Adam, so it's obviously a hit.
Hey, just a quick note before we hit play on the interview we did yesterday morning with Luke Melpass. There are some comparative figures we talk about there between New Zealand and Australia, and those numbers are now a couple of days out of date. But the point we're making, that the per capita figures are pretty close between the two countries, still applies. So here we go. Look around international media and you keep seeing Australia and New Zealand grouped together at these two countries down there in the Pacific who are both seeing really low COVID infection rates and really low death rates when compared to most Western countries. But within New Zealand, we're talking about it slightly differently. We've been indulging in what Finance Minister Grant Robertson has called our national sport, you know, comparing ourselves to Australia and coming up short. So the idea, according to critics like National Party leader Simon Bridges, is that Australia's had a lockdown that was was lighter than New Zealand's. Hell, you could still get a haircut. And yet their numbers are kind of like ours once you adjust for, for population. You know, so what gives? So Luke Luke Milpas is Stuff's political editor, usually based in Wellington. But when COVID struck, he found himself back in his homeland with his pregnant wife. He's on the line now from Sydney. So first of all, Luke, new baby, congratulations. Can we can we ask the name? Uh, Winifred. My grandmother was a Winifred. Great name. Great name. She was she was Winnie sometimes, but but Winifred. Yeah, this this Winifred will probably be Freddie, but we'll uh, you know we'll just see what sticks over time. Nice, beautiful. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks, guys. So, post baby can be a bit of a nesting time, even in ordinary times. Has lockdown been okay as you adjust to life with with child number two? Uh, yes, I, I suppose it has been. I mean. Th- I think the key difference between what's going on here in Australia and what's going on in New Zealand is that life is actually is just a bit more convenient here. Um, the social isolating side of it is pretty much the same. Um, you know, you, you can't go around and see your friends. Um, you know, you stick to your little bubble, um, although the Australians don't even really talk in terms of bubbles. They're basically saying stay at home uh, unless you have to go to work. However, they've obviously kept a lot more stuff open. So, you know, um, so I went up to the baby shop um, yesterday to pick up something and, you know, you can just go in there and buy things. Um, You know, I went to Bunnings to get some sort of uh, child, you know, safety thing for my my other daughter, um, stop her getting out of her room. Um, And, you know, they've got a little sign up sort of four people per aisle. Um, So, and of course, you know, if you want to get, um, uh, if you want to get any sort of takeout food, uh, you can get that in a lot of restaurants and gear themselves up to to just do takeout. And, um, you know, uh, Mac is, is selling uh, bread and milk through the drive-thru. So, you know, um, so it's a, bit of a, it's a bit of a different environment. When you talk about going to the baby shop, so there's, there's someone actually working there, customers can just walk in, you can walk yeah. around the shelves? Yep, absolutely. Hmm. So they have a limit. So usually there's a sign. So in most shops, there's a sign up on the door saying, you know, due to government regulation, there's a limit on how many people we have. You know, we've got a limit of 15 in the store, for example. And when you line up anywhere, there'll be, you know, dots on the floor so that everyone uh, lines up a a certain distance apart. A, A lot of places are shut, but anything that you might conceivably need is open. You know, Kmart is open, Bunnings is open, the supermarkets are open, the odd shoe store, you know, you can get a a new pair of specs if you need them. And go on, indulge us with the uh, New Zealand obsession with coffee. How easy is it to get a flat white? Extremely easy. Damn it. Interview's over. That's all we need to know. (laughs) 
<laughs> I went out and got one over Easter weekend and sent it back to the stuff press gallery team. Yeah, so no, you can you can get a coffee uh, and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, it's just as I say, like the social distancing side of it is, I I think probably just as hard because you are socially pretty much as limited apart from a superficial interaction at the coffee shop, but um, uh, but just a little convenient things that help your life kind of go a bit better um, uh, are there, yeah. So how is it playing out in terms of how Australians are feeling about their lockdown and how, and how their government has performed? So I think in New Zealand uh, there is probably more certainty in a way because New Zealand went into level four lockdown. It was given a period of, you know, a, a set period of time. Now it's been lengthened and now it'll be level three for a period, whereas Scott Morrison has consistently talked about it's going to be at least six months. So New Zealand kind of had a shorter um, runway into it. Uh, I think the other thing is if you look at the two um, countries' wage subsidies, New Zealand's was much quicker. It was straight out of the gate, more or less, and it was better designed. It just said basically if you've got employees, you can get the wage subsidy. Australia's done all sorts of kind of carve-outs that if you're on certain visas, you aren't eligible for it. It doesn't start in May. And when they first, when uh, Scott Morrison and Treasurer Josh Frydenberg first started announcing um, a policy response to this, the first big announcement they had was actually that they were going to double the unemployment benefit. And then they didn't come in with their wage subsidy for about, I think it was 48 or 72 hours. And in that period, of course, a lot of, uh, a lot of workers got laid off because businesses went, well, the government's not going to help you can go on the unemployment benefit. It's a lot better than it was, although it's not great. So I think New Zealand's initial response was quicker out of the block than Australia's was. So let's talk numbers around COVID itself. Per capita numbers aren't necessarily the best way to talk about short-term measurements in a situation where there's exponential spread. But for what it's worth, here are some quick reminders. So New Zealand's population is just under 5 million. Australia's is five times bigger, just under 25 million. New Zealand's had roughly 1,400 infections to Australia's um, sort of six and a half, seven thousand 7,000 cases. Again, a factor of about five. New Zealand's had 13 deaths to Australia's 74. New Zealand's done 85,000 odd tests to Australia's 430,000. If you get your calculator, you can see that per capita, all of those figures, cases, deaths, and tests done, are almost exactly the same. So that's fueled this idea. Australia's doing it softer than us, but they're getting the same health results. So are we overdoing it in New Zealand? What's the conversation in Australia around those kind of too much, too little? Interestingly, New Zealand has been held up by a lot of people as what Australia actually should have done particularly, uh, say, a couple of weeks ago when the Australian numbers were looking a fair bit hairier than they are now. And and I think certainly there's a pretty good proportion of the population that probably would have preferred uh, a New Zealand-style lockdown. However, and this is one of those things, we're not going to know for probably 12 to 18 months which approach was right here. New Zealand's sort of gone for the elimination strategy. Australia's gone for a, um, a suppression sort of a strategy. I think that's the term that's used. Yeah. But now they're actually seeing that they could manage to eliminate it as well. But the rhetoric is all the same, really. You've got to keep the social distancing measures in place. It's going to be a long while before um, pubs and uh, restaurants are going to be able to open again. And the Australian one is just a bit more fluid. I think probably the philosophical difference has been that in Australia, they've sort of said, all right, well, what can we keep open? They've had more of a bias towards keeping things open unless absolutely they need to close them. 
a lot of the shop closures and that sort of thing have been have been driven by companies here as opposed to the government. So um, the Premier, the company that owns like Just Jeans and Smiggle and a bunch of um, uh, sort of retail brands like that, they closed their stores off their own bat rather than the government doing it. Um, I think you'd have to say if New Zealand and Australia, if the numbers keep tracking more or less the same and both nations have similar success in eradicating or suppressing COVID, you would probably have to say that the Australian approach was better. But you won't be able to say that for 12 or 18 months and that could well end up not being the case. The other thing we're hoping you could help us out with as our uh, short-term Australia correspondent is tales of Australian lockdown. We were captivated with the story of Mr Bondi on Bondi Beach with his budgie smugglers uh, being arrested earlier in the week. What else are people talking about? Did you guys see a couple of weeks ago the Western Australia talking about the kebab jogger? No. So the Western Australian Premier, Mark McGowan, was, um, was asked by a journal, they said, what about if you're a guy and you've gone for a run and then you've stopped to have a kebab and, and you get arrested, which evidently, which evidently happened. And it's well worth getting the clip to this because the Western Australian Premier just lost it and he, and he, just, he just laughed through his whole press conference and just said, well, they obviously do things differently in New South Wales. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, like, if you go down to the beach here, it's just a lot of people around because you're allowed to get out and exercise as long as you sort of stay away from other people. There's even somewhere to get an ice cream if you want to. It's just sort of a matter of, of staying away from others. And because it's all a bit softer, softer than New Zealand, there's um, there's quite confusing press conferences where, you know, the journalists are trying to find out exactly what is allowed and what isn't. And it's all kind of a bit unclear and a bit sort of exercise your best judgment. It's just a bizarre time to live really when you consider what life was like at Christmas. So in New Zealand we are moving to level three next week. What's happening in Australia with lifting of any restrictions? All right so um, one of the dates that has been sort of floated around has been May the 11th. There's been a fair bit of speculation that'll be a date where there will be some easing of restrictions particularly for kind of retail shopping that sort of stuff. There's quite a push to get schools back open, particularly from the federal government. But obviously, as in New Zealand, people who actually work in schools are a bit nervous about this prospect. I think one of the significant things that's come from the Australians now, really, is the government started making noises about what their economic recovery kind of plan looks like. And this is where it diverges greatly from New Zealand's. So Grant Robertson was talking about, you know, has a big believer in the power of the state to do good really heavily implying it's going to be a state-led recovery in New Zealand, whereas the Liberal government over here, I mean, reflecting its different uh, political uh, stripes, has been saying we're looking at cutting company taxes, big deregulation agenda, lowering the cost of living to really try and grow Australia out of the pit it will find itself in at the end of all this. So I think that's, for me at least, that started to be the really interesting thing. Luke Malpass, we need to let you get back to your baby moon. Thank you very much for bringing us up to date on what's going on across the ditch. And keep enjoying your flat whites. <laughs> Thanks, guys. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Thursday, the 23rd of April. I'm Adam Dudding. He's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Steve Kilgallen, Luke Melpass, Alex Liu, Catherine George, John Hartevelt, and Carol Hirschfeld. Thanks for joining us again. You can find us on all the podcast apps or at the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. And if you want to see a very cute photo of Luke and baby Winifred, go and have a look on their website. You can get in touch with us via email, viruspod at stuff.co.nz. Favel. Favel.